As 2022 comes to an end, as I'm speaking with you on New Year's Eve 2022, uh, the question is, who is winning the war in uh, Ukraine? Is it Russia? Is it the West? Is it Ukraine? And what will be the long-term implications for the uh, emerging world order for all our lives uh, as this war grinds on. Well, the first thing to understand, of course, is there's not just one war in Ukraine, not just one war that's been fought on the battlefields in Donbass. It is a multi-dimensional war, a full-spectrum war, not only between Russia and Ukraine, but between NATO, Russia and Ukraine and the four vectors of that war. That's what I'll be looking at in this video, in this podcast. Welcome everyone, I'm Jeff Rich and this is the Burning Archive podcast and YouTube channel. And uh, this is the second segment of my retrospective uh, review at the end of 2022 of the Russia-NATO-Ukraine war. In part one, I... Uh, explain the relevance of this black legend of Russian history to uh, the Russia to the events of the Russia-Ukraine war. How it contributed to the, the I mean the distorted images of Russia and Russian history that are portrayed in the black legend of the Russian history, which I've explained in a series of videos uh, on the channel uh, and on the podcast. Um, how that distorted image is one of the causes of the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, that it has led to a failure to negotiate a genuine peace between Russia and the parties of the West uh, in the wake of the end of the Cold War. But now the task is before the entire world to find a new set of international and security arrangements that will offer lasting peace. Do we choose the route of the liberal American rules-based order or do we choose the path of a multipolar world advocated by uh, the majority of the remainder of the world? Uh, that is the question we'll be looking at in this podcast. And if this is the first time you've come to the channel, uh, do subscribe and like and uh, share the podcast. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And um, I, uh, uh, I'm Jeff Rich. I'm a historian, writer, uh, podcaster and a retired government official, and I've been following the Russia-Ukraine war closely throughout 2022, and have done a series of podcasts uh, around both the Russia-Ukraine war uh, between February and June uh, uh, 2022, and also uh, uh, a whole series of podcasts on the Black Legend of Russian history, telling the story of Russian history backwards, uh, which uh, has uh, also been a way of trying to make sense of what some of the key issues are uh, in a, coming to a better understanding of Russia so that we can negotiate a genuine peace in the world that accepts uh, the, the, the valid claims of different countries around the world for security, peace and uh, a fair rules a fair world order. Uh, and in this video I'm going to look at four, four vectors of the Russia Ukraine NATO war. And those uh, vectors reflect uh, the early analysis I undertook on the podcast, the Burning Archive podcast, back in February and March um, 2022, where I commented that this war was not just a war about uh, military matters. This was a war that was being conducted on multiple fronts. Most 
dramatically so, I guess, in the extraordinary economic war that was being launched against uh, Russia. Uh, the American president, Joe Biden, announced the intention of uh, turning the ruble into rubble. And there was uh, a serious attempt, I guess, to engineer an economic collapse uh, in Russia, similar to what occurred perhaps in uh, in the 1990s and uh, in I think 2007 or 2000 or two, uh, in sometime in the 2000 uh, in the 2000s there was also a serious um, run on the uh, Russian ruble. So there was an attempt to uh, weaken Russia's military effort by sabotaging its economy through the uh, imposition of sanctions. And then similarly, there was an enormous uh, information and cultural war, um, an unprecedented, perhaps, information cultural war launched against Russia. Uh, Russia was to be cancelled. All sorts of Russian news and media outlets in the West were remarkably, for the democratic West, banned. Um, you could not watch uh, Russia Today on YouTube. Uh, there were even calls um, for people to prevent um, access to Russian websites in the West as well. Uh, hardly uh, free and open information for all citizens. And uh, similarly... Um, Tchaikovsky was cancelled, Dostoevsky was cancelled, <laughs> so on and so forth. Uh, it was uh, an astonishing, astonishing and really quite shocking uh, set of events. And also there was a major diplomatic war. Uh, it's perhaps a bit of an oxymoron to talk about a diplomatic war, but there was a, certainly a diplomatic struggle, a conflict going on. Uh, uh, to sort of win the uh, hearts and minds of different countries and the loyalty of different countries in votes in the United Nations uh, to uh, a serious attempt to isolate Russia diplomatically. Uh, and in my... Uh, episodes, my very first episodes of the podcast that looked at the Russia-Ukraine war back in February and March 2022, I set out an analysis of uh, this war along these sort of four vectors. And uh, recently I just actually listened back to some of these uh, things and I think uh, some of that analysis is quite, uh, well, uh, I think valid. Some of it was perhaps wrong, certainly I think on the military front. Uh, at that early stage in late February, March, I overestimated the, uh, well, w with the initial rapid advances in surrounding of Kiev, I thought that the war would be over far, far sooner than in fact it was. Um, but uh, certainly at that point, I was already picking up uh, both the shock at the cultural war against Russia, the resistance of major countries like India to the diplomatic war against Russia, and also the apparent resilience of the Russian economy uh, against, uh, against the economic sanctions. And you can uh, check out those uh, retrospective uh podcasts on both my YouTube channel and on the podcast as well. Uh, I think they sort of hold up, but what I want to do in this video is really go for each of those four vectors and look at, well, who's winning the war now? What are the implications for the emerging world order? And also, I guess, um, how does... Uh, how have we seen the black legend of Russian history, uh, which I've talked about on the podcast now uh, over the last uh, six months, um, how has it played out in these four vectors of the war, uh, the Russian 
Ukraine NATO war of 2022. So, first up, the military uh, war. I've in my uh, earlier video, uh, in part one of, uh, of this retrospective on the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, I've looked at the sort of sequence of events, the narrative of events, and also talked a little bit about some of the issue, the military issues in the war. How uh, Russia initially, if you like, went in relatively soft, and contrary to perhaps expectations and I guess the Western mode of the war, there was no massive shock and awe campaign against Ukrainian cities in the first, um, well, not really until sort of November. And really not even yet, there has been no massive uh, constant bombardment of, of uh, Ukrainian uh, cities and civilian sites it has been a very targeted set of uh, bombing campaigns in russia there has been talk of brave ukrainian resistance and russian incompetence and so forth and i guess always in war things don't go to plan plans are formulated but they uh, need to be adapted along the way um you know, no plan, no war plan, no war strategy survives encounter with the enemy, as they say. So it's perhaps not surprising that uh, there was a period of change and adjustment in the first few months of the war. And that partly reflected, I guess, political uh, constraints from Russia, as I think I discussed in the first episode. Clearly, the initial intent of the Russian military effort was not to obliterate Ukraine, but rather to force uh, rapid negotiations uh, either with a new regime or with the current regime in Ukraine around uh, Russia's political objectives of the war. Uh, but there was always also that effort, that objective to demilitarize Ukraine uh, and also to prevent it being part of uh, NATO. Uh, and in terms of territory uh, uh, occupied, I guess, uh, in that first couple of months of, of well, that first month or two, of uh, the war, Russia appeared to occupy more territory of Ukraine than it currently does. So you could say that, um, you know, Russia, uh, Ukraine has pushed back the Ukrainian occupiers. But on the other hand, following uh, the decisions in uh, September and October, Russia is actually formally incorporated into the Russian Federation, Lugansk, Donetsk, uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson regions. And so that large sort of crescent uh, of uh, east and southeast Ukraine has uh, been lost to Russia. Um, and I think uh, the estimate is that somewhere in the order of 10 million, a population of roughly 10 million, uh, and uh, a large proportion of some of the key economic assets of Russia, of, of Ukraine, have now uh, been claimed by Russia. So, uh, uh, so there's, I guess, a mixed ledger in terms of... Uh, uh, conquest, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, um, uh, at this stage of the war. And um, its key objectives, I guess, of the control of the territories of Lugansk and Donetsk are nearly, not quite uh, complete uh, from Russia's point of view, um, but it's certainly more effective control of those territories by Russia than there is by Ukraine. More broadly, however, I think there are a couple of uh, key points around the, this this uh, conflict. First of all, uh, this is not 
uh, really a war about the control of territory. This is a war around demilitarization. This is a war to destroy an opposing army from the Russian point of view. And in that regard, they appear to be having very significant success. I mean, I'm not a military analyst. I can only uh, make my judgments on the basis of better informed and uh, uh, more expert judgments around this. But uh, there are a couple of people who I would uh, highly trust in that. One is Colonel Douglas McGregor, who has certainly taken the view that Russia is clearly militarily winning this war that Ukraine is now uh, has an army uh, of around about 150 to 200,000 soldiers uh, that it will be out uh, for the first time uh, outnumbered by the opposing Russian army and that it's uh, Many of its logistics and command structures have effectively been destroyed. And so that it is also being uh, drawn into these fire traps in the Donbass like Bakhmut, where uh, strategic withdrawals by the Russian forces have led to Ukrainian soldiers coming into cities like Kherson and Bakhmut where uh, they are subjected to intense fire uh, both from a distance by Russian artillery, artillery and missiles and up close by uh, infantry forces and uh, suffering enormous casualties. Uh, and uh, there are reports that Ukraine at this point is uh, conscripting uh, uh, young boys uh, less than 18 years old, as well as, you know, older men. And they're subjected to, that. they have provided very limited training. It is an enormous tragedy. There have been enormous casualties uh, and... Uh, um, I think it's more a question of when, not if, the Ukrainian military will collapse. Second, The second key point around this is that Russia, I mean, since no battle plan survives encounter with the enemy, uh, the key part of winning, with, winning a war has been the ability to adapt uh, uh, strategy to the actual facts and nature of the combat as it is. As they say, so generals fight the last war, um, smart generals work out what the current war is and adapt their strategy to that. And it would seem to me that Russia in its new uh, general and its reorganising of its army and forces in the last couple of months has demonstrated the capacity to reorganize and adapt its strategy to the war. Uh, General uh, Surivivan, and um, I think I've said his name right there. I'm not 100% sure. Ukraine, on the other hand, is trapped in this, uh, you know, defense at all costs and begging the uh, NATO countries, particularly America, for more arms, please, uh, every day. And uh, uh, it's now, I think, really just a question of time when that superior strategy and that superior organisation will, uh, Russia will press its advantages when the moment is ripe. And in this way, I guess, uh, it's interesting, that it's, it's a similar hypothesis that... Um, uh, um, uh, Dominic Levin makes about the War of 1812 to 1814 when Russia defeated Napoleon in Europe uh, despite the significant advances of France and uh, Napoleon's empire all the way to Moscow. Russia actually 
adapted its strategies, understood the nature of the combat of the time, and uh, found a way to win the war. A key part of its winning the war was its leadership and organisation. And then the third uh, key point around the military uh, con conflict is uh, uh, a um, comment that General Bakshi, who's a former Indian uh, general uh, or, or officer, who makes comments and has just written a book on the Russia-Ukraine war, Lessons Learned, uh, which I'll put uh, a link to in the description below, uh, has commented that in a way we're moving uh, back from a doctrine of war that informed uh, or that was informed by uh, the American wars of the last I guess 50 years of Vietnam and Afghanistan, etc., where there was uh, like a hyper-dominance of... Uh, it was an asymmetric war between a hyper-dominant power that could just, you know, bomb, you know, bomb Iraq or Afghanistan back into the Stone Ages, as they like to say, uh, and um, where there were relatively uh, low-intensity combats going on to an uh, age of military combat where potentially more equally paired uh, combatants are fighting more traditional style wars. He says, if you like, we've sort of circled back or cycled back to the nature of the conflict that was apparent in World War II. And in this way, I think... Um, Russia is showing itself to be uh, more strategically aligned to that sort of um, strategy to have got the uh, military industrial complex of its country organized sufficiently. It can produce all the missiles it needs, whereas the West is scrabbling around finding uh, saying that they simply are, they're running out of their military stocks and it is in the right position to win this long war of attrition. Um, and perhaps again this is a case of uh, how the black legend of Russian history has led Western leaders into dreadful strategic mistakes because They've underestimated the Russian uh, military leadership and they've overestimated uh, their own military strength as uh, either the heroic resistance of, you know, Russian, of Ukrainians fighting back Russian soldiers with broomsticks and rifles or, uh, you know, America being able to field the, uh, the wonder weapons that will sort of uh, um, uh, ensure its its hyper dominance in any military conflict. Okay, second dimension of the war is the economic war, and this is certainly one in which um, the black legend of Russian history has played a key part in the strategic miscalculations of NATO and the West. The uh, I guess cliched image of Russia in American political circles is that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. This was a comment by former Senator John McCain, Republican candidate for president against Barack Obama. And it's a, a comment that is um, repeated, I guess, by um, people from both sides of politics uh, in America and it is a assumption I guess that the uh, Russian economy is uh, sort of narrowly focused on resources uh, not technologically sophisticated um, and all the rest of it that has perhaps led to uh, an overestimation of the impact of the economic sanctions on Russia. Uh, those sanctions were extreme and they included um, seizing the foreign reserves of the Russia, um, 
like hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign reserves. Although apparently um, it seems that there were less of those foreign reserves uh, in in vulnerable positions ready to be seized than the, the Western countries thought there were and that they've only been able to actually get their hands on um, a, a proportion of that um, that uh, estimated treasure um, and similarly there were uh, there were sanctions applied against the Russian Central Bank which was a serious escalation in the nature of the the economic war this was not just uh, I guess criminal sanctions against bad actors this was actually a uh, targeting of the central you know bank of of Russia uh, help controlling its economy the expectation the confident expectation of Joe Biden and all the rest of it was that Russia would be uh, the Russian ruble would would become rubble <laughs> before very long. Uh, in fact, the Russian ruble certainly it went through a sudden uh, devaluation of about twenty-five, thirty percent. But uh, a whole series of uh, measures were introduced into Russia to control outflow of. Uh, money and uh, uh, assets, and also to diversify, or 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 to, um, I guess, um, provide support for the the uh, uh, Russian industry, uh, and it uh, 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 Russia's economy has displayed remarkable resilience. In fact, perhaps even more resilience than the Russian leadership expected. And this was commented on indeed by Vladimir Putin in his address to the Valdai Discussion Club in late October 2022, where he said that one of the surprises, including, I guess, from the more uh, pro-Western, maybe, or what people imagine would be the more pro-Western elites within Russia, who were who, including the governor of the Russian uh, Reserve or Central Bank, uh, uh, Russia was less uh, reliant on uh, sympathetic attitudes of uh, Western governments for its economy to succeed than they had thought. It had been a significant constraint on Russia's actions in Ukraine for a number of years to you know, try to avoid this sort of backlash from the West. When it came, Russia, it seems, was actually well prepared in a way the West was not. And Russia sort of weathered the storm. So today, I think, uh, Russian ruble, it, it sort of went down a little bit in the last couple of weeks in relationship to some measures perhaps even um, uh, organised by the Russian government, but it's trading in the 70s, which is a broadly similar range to the start of the conflict. It had dropped down at its lowest point to like uh, roughly 50, 50 uh, cents to the US dollar. Uh, okay, so the sanctions war failed against Russia. And if you look at the Ukrainian economy, it's lost a huge population. It's utterly dependent upon Western aid for basic operations. Uh, it is in a it's in a pathetic, pathetic state. It can only really uh, continue this war on the basis of continued uh, propping up by Western partners. And what's more, the uh, impact of the war on Europe particularly has been extremely negative. Uh, gas prices have gone up, petrol prices have gone up, food prices have gone up. Uh, and some of the food price impacts of the war through both sanctions on fertiliser and you know Russian trade uh, has had a dramatically negative impact on Africa and Global South and that has 
um, had a impact on the diplomatic relationships with those countries between the West and those diplomatic countries. So, uh, so the sanctions war has been weathered by Russia, and despite uh, I think the European Union now being on something like its tenth sanctions package against Russia, uh, that that uh, that seems to have more negative impact on the European Union than it has had on uh, Russia. Uh, arguably, there have been benefits for America. It is now selling a lot of oil and gas at ex very high prices to Europe. Uh, but it, there is also significant discussion of the growing uh, de-dollarisation of the uh, world's financial system, uh, the, 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 the loss of America being offering the reserve currency to the world, the, the reduced amount of trade uh, in uh, the American dollar, which underpins the um, high government spending on military and the significant debt in America. So, uh, and if that, if one, if one of the broader consequences of this conflict is uh, the loss of the economic and military advantages of that financial domination of the world that has underpinned American leadership really since you know World War One, then um, uh, that will be a dramatic loss for the NATO forces. So overall assessment is that uh, uh, NATO is losing the economic war against Russia that in a way this 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 war is accelerating a shift to a more uh, decentralized multipolar economic order not the globalized financialized system dominated by America then the cultural war and uh, again this is one of those I, to me truly shocking aspects of this war I've truly been uh, you know um, taken aback by some of the propaganda that has uh, uh, dominated Western media um, and also at the uh, uh, the hostility, I guess, towards Russia in some ways, almost, I, I guess, racism, racism isn't quite the right word, but let's call it ethnic prejudice that has certainly been expressed against uh, Russia and has been given free reign and tolerated. Uh, and also the, uh, the sodotine censorship, I guess, that has been applied in uh, the West uh, against alternative views and differing views uh, on the Ukrainian conflict. And when I made my podcasts earlier in the year, I guess I was still a serving government official, so I was a little bit perhaps brave in saying what I did then, but uh, uh, I think I can be more open now to say this has really been a disgraceful episode in the uh, history of Western media and Western political leaders. So although uh, on the surface it would seem that uh, uh, the West is dominating the information war and dominating the cultural war, I do wonder whether uh, uh, there is at least a level of counter-offensive, so to speak, that is happening uh, from the um, Russia and, if you like, the other other non-Western civilizations of the world. Uh, but overall, I guess the West, with its extraordinary uh, domination of the cultural 
information space through the Western media, uh, Netflix and, you know, Google and all that sort of thing. Uh, YouTube, put on YouTube, don't demonetize me. Well, I guess I'm not monetized yet. But um, uh, the, uh, the, they are certainly, this is one vector of the war in which the NATO powers are winning. But in winning, they have perhaps uh, overplayed their hands uh, in, um, in, in, in whitewashing the uh, involvement of uh, extreme nationalism in the Ukrainian cause, in whitewashing the uh, ethnic prejudice expressed by Ukrainian nationalist leaders, but also <laughs> the American geo, American and European elites. I mean, it was Joseph Burrell who, who is like the foreign minister for the European Union. It's not the formal title. It's not a foreign minister, but something similar. But he said that you know Europe is a is a garden, and the rest of the world is a jungle. Uh, on in contrast to that, uh, I guess Vladimir Putin has explicitly, I guess, moved the um, the debate around this aspect of this war onto a. Uh, a more uh, aggressive, if you like, uh, or, or taking the initiative in this debate on the war by arguing for true diversity of civilizations uh, and like a symphony of civilizations in the world. And I think over time that cause will have growing support from, you know, the 80% of the world who are not in the West. Uh, China, India, Latin America, Africa, who will want to see more recognition for their cultural diversity and their approach to things and less domination by uh, the Western media. Um, so um, uh, the, the, the aggressive offence of the West in the cultural war in that first few months in in the war has perhaps ended up being a strategic mistake certainly they were able to take Russia today off air but it has been at the price of the ultimate sabotage of their own credibility and of their own uh, authority and I guess the uh, expo the uh, the final exposure of the insularity and the um, uh, assumed dominance of Western civilization over uh, all the other traditions of the world. Um, and I have made a, another video on uh, Vladimir Putin's discussion of the symphony of civilizations uh, that you might want to look at, as well as uh, posting a series of videos and podcasts on the many different civilizations of the world that you also might want to check out on the YouTube channel. Finally, the diplomatic war. So in the diplomatic war, NATO, the West, uh, Ukraine sought to isolate Russia and turn it into a prior state to embarrass it uh, on the international stage and to uh, orchestrate, you know, votes in the United Nations and uh, other sorts of um, both symbolic and real displays of uh, disapproval uh, from countries around the world, particularly countries uh, that were part of the US alliance system. But uh, also countries that were unaligned in some way or another, uh, and there were, uh, and some of these uh, efforts have been quite extreme. So they've included proposals from Ukraine to exclude uh, Russia from the United Nations Security Council. Uh, they've, uh, I think, they've even proposed excluding Russia from the United Nations itself. <laughs> uh, 
which uh, would be, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, something equivalent to the self-destruction of the League of Nations in the 1930s. And one of the central um, players in this uh, conflict has been India, the world's, uh, well, soon to be the world's largest nation. Uh, yeah, the population of India is about to overtake China in 2023, uh, and certainly the world's long, uh, largest democracy. Former uh, imperial possession of the United Kingdom, which together with the United States has bestrode the world like in a colossus for the last 300 years. And uh, there has been enormous pressure and diplomatic efforts to try to get uh, India to swing behind the uh, uh, Western or NATO American position on the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, relatively early on in uh, the conflict, uh, a quad meeting was held in my own, a quad being the um, uh, quadrilateral security dialogue uh, meeting between um, the United States of America, Japan, Australia and India, uh, which has been a significant effort to try to draw India more uh, explicitly from its long tradition of non-alignment into a uh, aligned position on the Indo-Pacific strategy, the containment of China uh, alongside those Anglophone states of America, uh, uh, England, oh, not well, AUKUS, I'm thinking of AUKUS, the Anglophone states, but America, Australia, and Japan, which still, I guess, is, if you like, an occupied country by America with a, a sort of constrained constitution following World War Two, and, and the Indian Foreign Minister, uh, Dr. Jay Shankar, was uh, in Melbourne, and uh, the Australian media badgered him about why, why, why he would not um, sort of support. Um, support uh, 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 the American position on and, uh, you know, oppose Russia more explicitly, whereas India's always maintained a relatively balanced position in support of the resolution through conflict and dialogue, but they've also refused to go along with the Western uh, sanctions and oil price caps and uh, restrictions on the sale of military equipment and so on. Uh, and there was even a meeting, uh, a lead, special leaders' summit organised um, with um, at some point where Joe Biden sought to pressure uh, Narendra Modi as Prime Minister of India to sort of, you know, fall into line with the American position. But they have consistently failed to achieve that. America has, uh, sorry, India has continued to maintain its uh, sort of, its, uh, its, its position on the Russia-Ukraine conflict has refused to be drawn into sort of block politics and has uh, attracted a growing number of the BRICS nations. And what's also been apparent throughout 2022 is despite all the American efforts to uh, bully the world, I guess, into its, um, its economic war against Russia, uh, the various BRICS nations, uh, Brazil, India, China, South Africa, Latin America, have been um, increasingly asserting themselves in support of uh, the new emerging institutions like BRICS and the Shanghai, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and also in support of a fairer 
world multipolar world order. Indeed, I think there was a major vote at the United Nations General Assembly at some point where the great majority of the world expressed its support for a fairer world order rather than the sort of American liberal rules-based order. Uh, and uh, and that has only strengthened, including Saudi Arabia um, growing much closer to China, uh, potentially joining BRICS and uh, multiple major commodity nations, including Saudi Arabia, uh, moving to trade in uh, uh, their own um, currencies rather than through the US dollar for oil, which will, uh, is both a military, economic and diplomatic defeat for the NATO partners. And so uh, all the efforts to isolate Russia uh, and to separate out great states of India and China from their support for Russia have, I think, ultimately been unsuccessful through 2022. And perhaps this has culminated uh, most dramatically in the uh, sort of all-day video conference uh, meeting between Xi Jinping uh, of China and uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia on the 30th of December. And as you can see here, President, uh, the, both, uh, both China and Russia have released their sort of uh, media releases on those talks. And let me just uh, read um, two key sections from each of the readouts of those uh, sections which relate to this whole question of, well, who is winning the diplomatic war uh, 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 provoked by the the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine? So it says here that President Xi, this is from the Chinese uh, readout, President Xi emphasised that the world has now come to another historical crossroads. To revert to a Cold War mentality, provoke division and antagonism, and stoke confrontation between blocks, or to act out of the common good of... On, that's on the one side. Or to act out of the common good of humanity to promote equality, mutual respect, and win-win cooperation. The tug of war between these two trends is testing the wisdom of statesmen in major countries as well as the reason of the entire humanity. Facts have repeatedly proven that containment and suppression, uh, which uh, I'll just insert you could in, uh, take as code for American attempts to contain China, to contain Russia, uh, is unpopular and sanction and interference is doomed to fail, as indeed we have learned in looking at the economic war against Russia. China stands ready to join hands with Russia and all other progressive forces around the world who oppose hegemony and power politics to reject any unilateralism, protectionism and bullying, firmly safeguard the sovereignty, security and development interests of the two countries and uphold international fairness and justice. The two sides need to maintain close coordination and collaboration in international affairs, uphold the authority of the United Nations and the status of international law, stand for true multilateralism and fulfil their responsibilities as major countries and lead by example on such issues as protecting the global food and energy security uh, as protecting global food and energy security i.e. not sanctioning fertiliser and oil and gas um, 
The two sides need to continue encouraging parties of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to enhance solidarity and mutual trust, show greater mutual support on issues concerning one another's core interests and jointly resist interference and sabotage by external forces, i.e. United, uh, United States colour revolutions and geostrategic games. BRICS cooperation has seen multiple highlights which speaks volumes about the appeal and bright prospects of BRICS. China will work with Russia to actively advance BRICS membership expansion to bolster the strength of BRICS countries and uphold the common interests of emerging market countries and developing uh countries and then uh, a little bit further on there is also a brief uh, paragraph uh, saying that the two presidents exchanged views on the Ukraine crisis President Xi stressed that China has noted Russia's statement that it has never refused to resolve the conflict through diplomatic negotiations, and China commends that. The path of peace talks will not be a smooth one, but as long as parties do not give up, there will always be prospects for peace. China will continue to hold an objective and impartial position, work to build synergy in the international community, and play a constructive role toward a peaceful resolution of the Ukraine crisis. So uh, China has got Russia's back, so to speak, and it, it has not deviated at all from the position it uh, has articulated throughout the process, and in fact is very much talking about strengthening BRICS and strengthening a fairer uh, fairer multipolar world order. Then if we look at the Russian statement, so in the Russian president's readout of the statement, which uh, relate to his remarks, I guess, at the start of the video conference before the meeting became a closed one, uh, he says, uh, in the context of growing geopolitical tensions, the importance of the Russian-Chinese strategic partnership as a stability factor is growing. Our relations have passed all the tests, demonstrating their maturity and stability, and they continue to grow dynamically. As both of us pointed out, our current relations are enjoying the best period in their history and can be regarded as a model of cooperation between major powers in the 21st century. Geostrategic ideas from America to split Russia and China have clearly failed. He then goes on to comment that... Uh, that Intensive bilateral exchanges will continue in the coming year. I have no doubt that we will find an opportunity to meet in person. We are expecting you next spring with a state visit to Moscow. So that would be, I guess, in the like sort of March, April time. Uh, uh, perhaps even after Russia has <laughs> finally defeated Ukraine on the battlefields of the Donbass, this will demonstrate to the whole world how strong the Russian-Chinese friendship is, our agreement on key issues. Your visit will become the main political event of the year in bilateral relations. Despite the unfavourable external situation, the illegitimate restrictions and patent blackmail on the part of certain Western countries, Russia and China have achieved record high growth rates in mutual trade. Uh, in 2022, it increased by about 25%. If this trend continues, we will be able to achieve the target of 200 billion set by 2040 
2024 ahead of schedule. The economic war against Russia is failing. So it seems on the diplomatic war front that the global rules-based order has lost all credibility with the global south, that India has kept its its uh, non-aligned position and in fact um, perhaps become growingly disenchanted with American efforts to American and European efforts to, and British efforts to um, strong arm it into a, an anti-Russian position, uh, and that the Russia-China strategic partnership is stronger than ever. And indeed, both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are planning on a visit to of uh, Xi Jinping to Moscow in the March, April, May period, perhaps after a successful winter offensive in Ukraine, perhaps after the final collapse of the Zelensky regime and the NATO war against Russia in Ukraine, and that uh, BRICS is growing stronger uh, and the institutions of a new multipolar world are starting to emerge. So on three out of four fronts, it seems Russia is winning the war against NATO. It's winning on the military battlefields. It's winning uh, through its superior resilience on the economic uh, front, turning to uh, the its partner in China that Europe and America want to turn into a ideological competitor and uh, it's winning on the diplomatic front finding growing support and leadership uh, for uh, the uh, focus on uh, international law-based system and true multilateralism through uh, BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and perhaps a reformed UN Security Council, which will have uh, fewer American and uh, European uh, powers and more, uh, potentially even include India in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and on the cultural war front, the one front where Russia is weakest, the information war, uh, Amer uh, the West and NATO has perhaps overplayed its hand and compromised its own cultural values in uh, instigating uh, an astonishing uh, um, and intolerant campaign to cancel Russia. So that's where I see things uh, against those four fronts. And so then the question then becomes, how do we understand this war in a broader historical context? Is it, the, uh, is it Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine? Is it, is it uh, war provoked by NATO, uh, NATO expansion eastwards, or is it an even broader war at the end of the long hundred years Cold War of the Anglo-American powers against Russia, or the beginning of global wars of independence? And that broader narrative framing is going to be the topic of the third video I'm going to do on this uh, issue, this theme, um, but I'm that, that will come out in approximately a week or two's time uh, after a brief visit from my, by myself to the beaches of southern Australia. 
I hope you've enjoyed this. Do subscribe, uh, do like, uh, leave us a comment in the comments below. I'd be really interested in your own views on the interpretation of this war. And I might reflect some of those back in my third segment of the episode on how can we reframe the Russia-Ukraine-NATO war in a broader historical context. More from me soon.